as you turn to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. It took us, what, five weeks to get here? We're finally here. Revelation chapter 1. We're just going to cover today just the first four verses. Not too much, but a lot of iconic images in this book. Matter of fact, the brunt of the symbolism of your New Testament is here in the book of Revelation. Look at first, verse 1, first few words. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Little Bible study here. In the Greek language, when you see the word of, right, that's possessive in English, but it can be translated a number of different ways in Greek language. Uh, they talk about a subjective or an objective uh, version of this. The, the fancy way to talk about it is genitive. Is this an objective or subjective genitive? Is it about Jesus? Is he the subject of the revelation or is he the giver? Is it about him or through him? Uh, as you can read the rest of the verse, it's through Jesus. This revelation is given through Jesus to you today. Right. Without this book, your Bible is not complete. In a sense, this book of Revelation is the most important book in your Bible. I don't know if you like to read. I, my family's big readers, and we always read the last few chapters. Matter of fact, if you don't read the last few chapters, you haven't really read the book. Because it's the last few chapters that create uh, the, the tying of the bow to the story. You find out how the murder was solved. You find out the end of the story. You, you see some conclusion to the epic narrative, right? In the book of the Bible, without this 66 book, you have a Bible without an ending, right? You have a kingdom that hasn't come. You have a savior who doesn't reign. You have a Satan who hasn't been destroyed. You have the wicked who haven't been punished. You have the grapes of wrath that have been ripened but haven't been trodden through the winepress of the judgment of God. Without revelation, all prophecies don't come true. Death still exists. Death still has a sting. Without the book of Revelation, we have a meaningless Christmas. And we have a meaningless Easter. I can't overstate it when I say that this beatific vision here of the end of days is the conclusion of the story. And you've got to read it. Matter of fact, we're going to hear a verse in just a little bit that says, commands you to read this book. Incidentally, it's the one book that tells us to read it, and it's the one we don't read. I don't know how many times you've read the book of Revelation, but I encourage you this year to read it at least once, if not twice, if not three times. It reads well. It's fanciful. It's full of different types of literature. We'll cover that in a little bit, but it is... It is a book about your future. And why would you not want to know your future? So let us start with some basic questions about this book. First, what I just said, what genre is it? Well, it's actually entirely unique in the Bible because it has three genres. It is apocalyptic literature. Matter of fact, the first word in the Greek, verse 1, chapter 1, is apocalypto. Apo means up. Calypso is the, the pulling. So the pulling of the covers up. Right? The pulling up of the covers. Think of a table set in the Lord's 
Supper, this wedding supper of the Lamb we just celebrated. Think of it set perfectly, but it has a cover over it. Right? And then the guest of honor, the host maybe, pulls the cover back and shows you how it all ends. That's this book, the pulling up, the unveiling. That's the first word of this section. So it's apocalyptic, but it also is prophetic. That's the second type of literature this is. It has prophecy. It's about future events. You know, we're not going to understand all, but we can understand a lot. And what we do understand, especially in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, and in chapters 19, 20, 21, 22, these early chapters and these later chapters, they're pretty clear. And like Mark Twain, you remember the Mark Twain quote, he said, the parts I don't understand don't scare me. It's the parts of the Bible I do understand that keep me up at night. You're going to understand plenty. Even though it's apocalyptic and it's prophetic, you're going to understand plenty. But it's also, third, it's an epistle. You can see that in verse 3. Right? Verse 4. It's an epistle. It's meant to be read as a letter to you. So this book has no parallel. It is absolutely unique. Now, a couple of extra comments. So besides what genre it is, who wrote it? Well, it was written by one of the 12 apostles. He is the last to write, the last to die. His name is John. In the gospel that he wrote, he called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's, that's his term. He's a, he is, uh, it's appropriate that he's on an island. Maybe he was somewhat of an extrovert. He's definitely shy in the writing of the gospel of John. But you see life revealed in his gospel. And then he writes three little letters. And you see, you see life redeemed in those three little letters called 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Then in this book, you see life rewarded. He is a man in his 90s. The temple has been destroyed for about 20 years. The Jews and the Christians are dispersed. And John has found himself preaching the gospel, being a Christian witness in a time of great persecution. Nero has been killed, right? Domitian has taken over. Both are murderers. Both are bad guys. But Domitian sends him into exile because of witnessing. You Bible-believing, Bible-thumper, you need to be quiet. We're going to put you in a corner. We're going we're to exile you. We're going to put a mask on you. We're going to muzzle you. And that's what they do to him, much like they do in our culture. They try to muzzle us. And in the process, um, he ends his life there. Now, there's some traditions that have different versions of that. One tradition says that the Romans tried to kill him by putting him in a, a vat of boiling oil. I can think of all the ways I'd want to be martyred, and that would not be in the top two, right? But anyway, according to that tradition, it didn't work, and so they had to exile him. Uh, sounds fanciful, sounds too sensational, I don't know. But regardless, it was written by John to persecuted Christians, Christians facing persecution in the first century. So if you are a Christian witness filled by the Holy Spirit, sharing your faith, which is what a Christian is, if you speak up about your faith in your circles of influence and you face persecution, right? You face ugly looks. You face maybe, uh, you know, some sort of prejudice at work. You get passed over maybe in your culture. Um, your boss says to leave it at home and you can't say it and blah, blah, blah. Whatever your persecution is in the 21st century, Christians face more subtle persecution 
But we are in the history of the world, this time in history, there are more people killed for the faith in the world than in this century. All right? So lots of persecution, timely book for you and I, as the world and the devil and the flesh crank down the screws into persecuting Christians. All right, so it was written to an audience being persecuted. It was written about the gospel and the future of God's kingdom. It was written to persecuted Christians about the good news, right, to keep sharing it, keep talking about it, because you're a part of the kingdom that wins. And the prayer of the Lord's Prayer, that part that says, Thy kingdom come, should be the prayer that is prayed at every verse that we read, every verse that we study in this book. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when we look at his kingdom coming, it is a kingdom of rescue. That's why it's good news. And we Christians haven't been rescued to be rescued. We've been rescued to be rescuers. Have you ever heard us say that as a church? We haven't said that in a while. It's kind of our mantra. For a long time, we said it almost every Sunday, like, go be the church. We would say, we haven't been rescued to be rescued. We've been rescued to be rescuers. We'll look at the rescuer, Jesus, next time. Today, I just want you to see the rescue plan. All right? The primary theme is of this book is Jesus Christ, the rescuer, and his rescue plan. The supremacy of Jesus Christ covers this book. In his greatness, you... You see his sufficiency, his supremacy. You see his people are supreme. You see the greatness of Jesus in this book. Like I said last week, though, this is an Old Testament Bible study. Revelation is an Old Testament Bible study. Out of its 404 verses, 278 contain references to the Old Testament. Isn't that amazing? 278 out of 404 that's why this is week five in this series, and we went through all these other texts because you got to understand Daniel 2, 7, 9. You got to understand Matthew. You've got to understand books like Psalms and Zechariah and Genesis and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Joel. Those are the books that this writer is going to quote in presenting this revelation. All right. Here's, before I start reading, I want you to see the bookends. I want, you to, I want you to feel this book in its completion of the narrative. The great story of the greatness of Jesus and his kingdom is bookended by a book called Revelation and a book called, book called Genesis and a book called Revelation. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see God creating the heavens and the earth. In Revelation chapter 21 and 22, we see a new heaven and a new earth. In Genesis chapter 21, chapter 1, we see the first Adam reigning on earth. The last Adam in Revelation 21 is reigning in glory. In Genesis chapter 1, we see nights, night and seas are created. In Genesis, in Revelation 21, no more night, no more seas. In Genesis 2, we see a bride is brought to Adam. In Revelation 19, we see a bride, we just read it, prepared for Christ. In Genesis 2, we see a tree of life in Eden. Genesis 2, Genesis 3. In Revelation, we see a new tree and a new garden. In Genesis 3, we see Satan utters the first lie. But in Revelation chapter 21, nothing that makes a lie is able to enter the city. Genesis 3, we see death and a curse. 
Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, no more curse, no more death. In Genesis chapter 3, we see conflict between Christ and Satan. But in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, we see Satan's final doom. The fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 is Revelation 20. The greatest promise in the greatest book about the greatest person who solves your greatest problem. In Genesis chapter 3, we see man driven from God's face. But in Revelation chapter 22, we see my favorite five words in all the Bible. They shall see his face. Right? Man sees his face in glory in Revelation chapter 22. So that's where we're going. That's some good stuff. So let's jump in. Chapter 1, verse 1. Look at the divine origin of this revelation. Just catch the whole verse. Here's the divine origin. The revelation of Jesus Christ, again, meaning through, not about. Chapters 1 and 2 is about Jesus, but that's only three chapters of 22. Right? Most of this, from chapter 6 through chapter 19, until he comes back on the battle of Armageddon, you don't see Jesus much. You don't see the church. You see no language that is unique to the church or unique hardly to Jesus. So he, somewhat it's not about him. It's the revelation through Jesus. But keep reading, which God gave him the revelation of Jesus, about, not about, but through Jesus that God gave him to show his bondservants, that's what he calls Christians, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. Do you see the order? Do you see the order? God, the father, right, gave it to Jesus. Jesus always carries out the word of the Father. As the Father speaks, Jesus says, so I do. So the Father decrees, verse 1, the Son carries it out. Who's next in the order? Then it's given to the angel. So it goes from Father to Son to angel, maybe Gabriel, we don't know, to John the Apostle, that's next in the line, to be given to his bondservants. So catch, catch the order, Father, Son, angel, John, bondservants. Now look at verse 3. Blessed is he who reads. So down to the individual Christian, this book has come to you. Notice that he calls us bondservants. <laughs> Nowhere is the Bible politically correct. This word doulos means slave. He calls you and I slaves of God. Right? There's a little attempt at of Paul in the book of Romans to say, I know the language is sloppy, but it's the best language. Because we, um, when it really comes down to it, we are subservient, we are lesser, we are inferior, and we are to serve. And he is a good master. He doesn't break the skin of the back of his servants. He is a good master. And this language of bondservant, in the, in the ancient world, a slave who was set free could choose to go back and be a part of that home. And they call that a bondservant technically. So he's, we're translating it here, doulos, we're translating it bondservant. But go on to verse 2. Verse 2 is the divine claim of this book. Divine origin, now divine claim. Who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So he calls the testimony of Jesus, he calls it the word of God. That's its claim. This is a bedrock Bible truth. This is Bible welded to the steel girder of the canon of Scripture. This book 
is written by the final eyewitness, John. And this book is welded to the canon to make it all make sense. Verse 3. Here's the divine ability of the Bible. It's the verse I alluded to earlier. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. So you studying this, love that we have a full house here today. Those watching online, I'm sure we've got a bunch watching live. It's great that you're here because there is blessing. I don't know about you, but you will not. You can try, but you will not find blessing in this cursed earth. You just can't find it. It doesn't last. It, it doesn't stand. It has a shelf life. It has an expiration date. But when you find blessing in God and his word, it lasts. It's significant. Reminds me of Psalm 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked following the political correctness. Doesn't stand in the path of sinners walking where they walk, loitering where they walk. He doesn't sit and just tolerate scoffing. But his delight, do you know the verse? Is in the law of the Lord, the word. And on it he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, living water, yielding its fruit in its season. And the promise of verse 3, and whatever he does, he prospers. He's successful. Love that verse. Reminds me of the first three chapters of Proverbs. Over and over again, the father tells the son, take these words like silver. They're more valuable than silver. Greater than silver. Reminds me of Jesus saying, whoever hears my words and do them, does them is like a man who builds his house on solid rock. When hard times come, it stands. But he pity the man who builds his house on sand, who doesn't heed these words. And when the, this is Dr. Moody's version, when the pandemic comes and the persecution comes and the hurricanes come and all that comes, the things which they value most are destroyed. And that's sad when they have more valuable things. No, a, a wise man values what is most valuable. And this word right here is most valuable. Joshua 1.8, another verse I think of. Joshua 1.8, this book of law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night. You will be careful to do all. Everybody say all. That's a favorite word in the Bible. Do careful, careful to do all that is written in it. Then you will have your way prosperous and you will have success. Again, it's interesting that this is the one book we're told to read. We're commanded to read and yet we don't read it. Blessing. When you read the book of Revelation, you are blessed because you know where you are in history. I said this a couple weeks back that it gives you the eyes of faith to know where you're at in history. And you don't fret of what's happening in the world. Whether you read the Houston Chronicle or watch C-SPAN or watch the weather, right? Whether you watch your own heart, right? You see the apostasy that's occurring you see the nations clamoring you see all that you see in the middle east much less here and you're okay because you know where in history you're at it helps you know where but it also helps you know when right that's huge that was the message from matthew look at verse one here again the things which soon underline the word soon the greek word here we get the word tachometer in english Tachometer. This word means quickly. 
the things which quickly will take place. I gave you a word a few weeks back, the word imminent, the imminent return of Christ. It'll happen at any moment. There is nothing in history right now which stands between this book and the rapture of the church. Nothing. There is nothing that God needs to do, nothing to be fulfilled. We are in the age of grace, and it will quickly end. And the, like the birth pains of a mother that give birth to babies, right? Like a thief in the night, Jesus says, the kingdom comes, and the end of days is here. It comes quickly. We know where, and we know when. But we also know what. Look at the end of verse 3. For the time is near, verse 4, so John to the seven churches. He, he's going to give the description of what a church is. We're going we're to study that here in just a few weeks. Chapter 2 and 3 gives little soundbite pictures of what Jesus loves in his church and what he hates in his church. Such a great study of the church coming up. We know what we're to be about. Verse 3, end of it, for the time is near. Nothing is left on the prophetic calendar for the rapture of the church to happen. To save the families of Noah... The boat has already been built. Yeah, it's standing on dry docks, but the rains are coming. In the early service, as soon as I said that, rain started hitting. Can't hear any now, but sprinkled a little bit right then. It was great timing. I got a high five on that one. Right? But here, the blessing is you know when and where and you know what. A Christian doesn't coast. Christian doesn't drift in life. We don't merely react to biological impulses, political impulses, social cues, social controls. We don't just merely react. We have a J-O-B. What does that stand for, boys? J-O-B. We have a job. Not the book of Job. We have a job. We have a commission. And our job is to proclaim the greatness of Jesus to the world to make disciples in this age of grace. Look at the last verse. Let me unpack it. It's the biggest verse. Verse 4. Here's the divine prayer of the work that you and I do in this age of grace until the end of days. And it'll come like a thief in the night. Verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. John will call himself the author of this book four times. Here's one of the times. So there's been nearly unanimous agreement in church history that John wrote this. If you have a study Bible, somebody pulled, showed me a study Bible in the middle of the week that said some other John wrote this. All right. I, I, the, the easiest, most traditional, most clear description of who wrote this is the same John who wrote the gospel and wrote the three letters. All right. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. I said earlier, the temple fell 20 years before. Here he's in 90 AD. Temple fell in 70 AD. The Jews are dispersed. The Christians are dispersed. And here John, to these seven churches in Asia, which is western Turkey, he ties a bow on all the loose ends that they have. They have questions about God's promises to the Jews. They have questions about God's promises to the Gentiles. They have questions about sat satanic attack. And they have questions about um, what, what is the end of death? Will we, what happens after we die? What's coming in the future in terms of heaven? Those are good questions when you're facing persecution. They, they have questions about the final judgment of the wicked. Will the Nero and the Domitians get away with it all? So this book ties a bow on it and completes the Bible, 66 books. And so when that guy or that team of guys comes 
to your house on a bike, oh, sorry, comes out of the woods and comes to you and says there's a 67th book, you, you tell them no. The Bible ends with the book of Revelation. The canon is complete. It's finished. No more need salvifically of another word. No more need prophetically of another word. This book ties up all the loose ends. Incidentally, John is the last of the apostles to die. Who was the first? The first apostle in Acts chapter 12 was James. Remember the story about James and John? They, they, in the Bible, they, they, they sick their mother on their mothers on Jesus. And they say, the mothers come and say, hey, our sons want to sit at your right and your left hand. Right? And Jesus says to them, um, can they? He looks at them, actually. He says, can you drink the cup that is coming? And they say, yeah, we can. And he kind of, I can almost see him smirking. Yeah, you will. And James is the first to die and drink the cup of martyrdom. And John here is the last. Isn't that interesting? God has different plans for different people. All right, look at the next part, the seven churches. The number seven, if you want to write a little note, the number seven is going to be used 54 times in this book. That's a pretty important word. We studied it in Daniel 9, didn't we? It's a prophetic word that means seven of somethings, and it's the notion of complete. What day did God finish? How many days did it take him to finish his creation? Six. And on the seventh day... They rested and celebrated. He rested and celebrated what he had done. It took him six days. Which day of those six was man created? On the sixth day. All right, so six is the number of man. It's the number of creation. Plus one, man plus God is the completion. You are not meant to live life alone. And in the seventh, the number seven, you have the number of completion. God and man together. And it started already. How do I know? Because I look at some of you and I can tell you've been spending time with the risen Christ. I can see in your eyes, I can see in your hunger for more of him, that you're spending time with Jesus. That's you and him that's complete to the seven churches. Now we're going to study these churches coming up. Um, and like I said, it's 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 amazing how, how that study of church that's coming up in chapter two and three is little sound bites of what Jesus hates and what Jesus loves. And it is, it is a powerful study for you and I to have. And so we're going to spend some time on that, but look at the next phrase, Asia that are in Asia, grace. So Western Turkey, the gospel has been moving westward, right? Came from the temple area, Jerusalem. It went westward into Asia. And what was the plan? What is the message? Grace. There's a story that goes with C.S. Lewis um, coming to a conference on Christianity. And they were saying, before he got there, they were arguing about what makes Christianity unique. And they, some said resurrection, some said a, a word from God. And their arguments were, well, there's other groups that talk about resurrection from the dead. And there's other groups that have holy scriptures. And they went on and on. And finally, C.S. Lewis walked in and uh, he heard their arguments. And he, in his kind of Oxford voice, he said, grace. Grace is what makes it different. That right there is the summation. You want one word that summarizes all the good news about Jesus. is that you got what you got by no work of your own. The word grace means gift. The word grace means unmerited favor. And so we don't just sing it. We sing amazing grace. We add words to it. It's like not good enough just to say grace. We have to say amazing grace. And even for John here, 
he goes further. He says, grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. Because that's what it is. That's the peace that we have in pandemics. That's the peace that we have in persecution. That's the peace that we have in politics and all the other strange iterations that we see in our world. That's the peace we have in parenting. That's the peace we have in family, in marriage, money. Right? Peace. It comes from the grace of God. It doesn't come from this world. You cannot find blessing on this cursed earth. You find it in God. So it's grace that creates peace. I'll come back to that. Look at the rest of it. From him who is and who was and who is to come. Past, present, future. God has a plan for eternity. That grace is good then. It's good now. It'll be good in the future. And he has completed his work. It's already done, but not yet experienced. He's completed it. He calls himself from the burning bush in Exodus 3.14. He says, I am. He says the name Yahweh, a word that has no tense. It's not past. It's not present. It's not future. It is the ever-present one. He says simply, I'm everything you need, whether in the past, the present, or the future. From the seven spirits. Now, let me say this. I'll pick this up next week because it's going to be quoted later in chapter 1. Let me just say it. Is your word spirits, is it capitalized? Look down at your Bible. Is spirits capitalized? I don't think it should be capitalized. This is a quote of Isaiah 11, which talks about the sevenfold ministries of the spirit. And we'll cover that next week. But this is a ministry of the spiritual life. And then the last little phrase there, who are before his throne. As you study this book, we'll pick this up next week. This is where we'll begin. We'll study and you will see the majesty of God in Christ all through Revelation. The throne, you want to write a few notes? Throne is mentioned 44 times in this book. Huge. Throne is mentioned 44 times. King, kingdom, rule. Those three words mentioned 37 times. King, kingdom, or rule. Power and authority. Those two words mentioned 40 times. All right, I'll say it again. Throne, 44 times. King, kingdom, rule, 37 times. Power, authority, 40 times. Hope you wrote that down. That's the theme of your life that can lead you to say you're a bond servant. On your handout, notice the anchor. In the early Christian church, for the first 400 years, the primary image of the church was not the cross. It was the anchor. If you're in the catacombs and your three friends have just been thrown to the lions or been used to light up Nero's garden parties and your their bodies have been doused with oil and lit up as a torch, which happened over and over again, and you're in the catacombs, you, you don't think about a cross. They have tons of anchors drawn on those catacombs with phrases like Pax Tecum and Pax Tibi in passe, which just means peace. Back to that word, peace. And the way to have peace is to anchor your life, to weld the word of God to the life that you have, and to create some steel in your spine. And the anchor is three parts. All right, here, here's where I get this. I get it from verse 19. We'll cover a little bit next time, but look at verse 19. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, the things which will take place after these things. Notice past, present, future. The things which you have seen, past. The things which are, present. The things which will take place. That's the outline of the book. You want the outline of the rescue? The anchor? It's first, in chapter 1, the things which you have seen. And this is the greatness of Jesus. 
We'll spend our time next week on the greatness of God in Christ. The greatness of God in Christ. You'll see a perfect picture of Jesus. And it is the final picture that the church receives before you see him coming again in in Revelation 19. Here is a perfect picture of God. We'll study it next week. Then we'll go into chapter 2 and 3. And we'll look at the anchor of God's people in the church. Who are the people of God? Who should you be able to depend on? Who should you be able to call foul out of bounds? Who should you be able to say, that's a touchdown? That's a field goal? Who should you be able to say is God's heart for who his church should be? Well, that's going to be the study in chapters 2 and 3. The things which are. Right? The church is moving westward. The church is aggressive. The church is evangelistic. He's going to say to almost all seven churches, the church prays. The church preaches. And they're in the middle, and there's a lot of language of spiritual warfare. They're in the middle of spiritual warfare. All right, so that's God's people in the church. We'll study that. And the brunt, the majority of our material from chapter 4 through chapter 22 will be the future. God's God's, uh, plan of recreation. We'll look at it. It will be play to play. You'll see the playbook of the plan of recreation. That's so good. You know, that is the summary of the whole Bible. That last word, recreation. You could summarize it as creation, fall, recreation. In the 66 books of the Bible that you have, the Bible portrays a world caught deep in the throes of suffering, just like ours. Human beings have had the same problem since Genesis 3. And verse after verse after verse of your Bible shows their struggles. And nothing's new under the sun. In painstaking detail, it shows those struggles. Yet the Bible's narrative is a simple one. Creation, fall, recreation. And without the completion of the redeeming work of Jesus recorded in the book of Revelation, we wouldn't have the end of the story. We would leave our hope in the future to some sort of doubt, serious doubt. But we need not doubt. We can run into suffering. We can run into problems and we can be okay and we can have peace. Let me tell you about another symbol from 9-11. It's a story that comes from a recent book by Jack Alexander He writes this about something else besides a Bible welded to metal that was found in the South Tower. Same tower. It's about a man by the name of Wells Crowler. Wells Crowler always wore a red bandana from six years old. Wells Crowler wore a red bandana. His dad gave him one and he said, here's a red bandana. (laughs) When he gave it to him, he said, the white bandana is in your pocket. For show, the red bandana is in your other pocket for blow. That's how he said it, blowing your nose. Wells took the red bandana serious, and he had it with him every day, everywhere. When he volunteered for the Empire Hook and Ladder Company at age 16, right, joining his father on the force, he carried it with him. When he played lacrosse at Boston College, he wrapped it around his head and put his helmet on top of that. Even when he took a job as an equities trader at the South Tower of the World Trade Center on the 104th floor of that building, he had it with him. In a culture of starched white handkerchiefs folded neatly in Italian suit breast pockets, Wells had his red bandana. And so it was with him on September 11, 2001, when United Airlines Flight 175 exploded into the South Tower, cutting a great gash between the 78th and the 85th floor. Several floors below Wells, remember he was on the 104th, 
Several floors below him was a woman by the name of Lin Yang. She was blown back by the explosion that hit the tower. And she couldn't see anything as she woke up because her glasses were covered in blood. When she cleaned off the glasses, what she saw was like out of nightmares. Bodies strewn everywhere, dust, debris. Lynn didn't know how long her luck would hold on until she saw a young man through the smoke and the ash, seemingly like a ghost, come out, not flesh. He said, I found the stairs, follow me. And that was Wells. Wells led Lynn down 17 flights of stairs to where firefighters led survivors down another 24, 20 flights of stairs to a working elevator. Right, But Wells didn't follow them. Instead, he went back up. Red bandana, like some of you with your masks on, red bandana around his face, around his nose and his mouth to keep the debris and the dust out. He went back up. He found, secondly, Judy Wine in the rubble, her arm broken, her ribs cracked, her, one of her lungs punctured. Wells cried out, everyone who can stand, stand, and if you can help anybody else, do that as well. Wells led Judy down the stairs again to a band of waiting firefighters. Then he went back up again and again. Wells didn't make it out of the South Tower. Perhaps he didn't expect to. They found his body six months later, six months later, surrounded by the bodies of uniformed firemen. It said he saved as many as a dozen people that day. He was 24 years old. Judy Wine told CNN, People can live a hundred years and not have that compassion. The wherewithal to do what he did. Lynn, that was Judy Wine. Lynn keeps a photo of Wells in her apartment. She says, without him, I wouldn't be here. He saved my life and he will always be in my heart. He will always be with me. Wells is gone, but his red bandana is not. You can go look at it. And to me, it's a symbol of heroic symbolism of what a man who says people are more important. People are worth dying for. People, I'm not going to play it safe. I'm going to be a rescuer. People are worth rescuing. 